So we come to Job part two of two. We won't be back in Job next week. Job, uh, as we looked at last week, is a piece of wisdom literature. And when you think of it like that, it helps you understand what to be looking for as you read through the book of Job. And the question of wisdom specifically comes into play when you hear his friends, who are miserable comforters, speaking truth at the wrong time. They lack wisdom, and that's, that's the, the wisdom element, as, as well as God's response at the end uh, really grabs a hold of um, the way that we uh, think about life and, and suffering. <clears throat> Last week, John um, asked a question about the textual uh, tradition, the transmission of the book of Job, and I wanted to address that before we jump back into the handout. Uh, a few thoughts that may not give uh, as robust an answer as you might want, but just some context. Uh, and Job was from the land of Uz, which is um, very possibly near Edom, so very close to the patriarchs, um, close to where Abraham and his uh, descendants dwelled, uh, close relatively speaking. Though Job was a Gentile, the author and the narrator seems to be a Hebrew seems to be somebody from the Israelites who has a knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures because you see him or her quoting uh, the Old Testament in a couple places. It's allu- uh, Psalm 8 is alluded to and Isaiah 41 is quoted and Psalm 107 is quoted. So there seems to be a knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures on the part of the one who's writing. So it's not an entirely pagan book, although it, it was... Uh, and even, of course, Job's not pagan either. I guess what I mean is it's, it's not an entirely Gentile book, although the subject is Gentile. Um, although Job himself and his family are not Gentile, and they did trust the, the God of Scripture. The authorship then, even if Job was alive during the time of Abraham, probably was not until later, perhaps the time of Moses. So this is speculation, but perhaps it was oral tradition for some time passed down. Uh, the story of those who dwelled next to Abraham uh, was passed down through the Israelites and then was written down in the time of Moses. Of course, we believe under the, uh, the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, there is in the, um, y- do y'all know the Qumran uh, development, the, the land where the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls were found? They found the book of Job there. And it was uh, interesting. It was found in uh, a Paleo-Hebrew script, like the Pentateuch. So that means it's, it's very probable, very possible at least, that it is from the same era as the Pentateuch. Some people may even say Moses himself wrote it. Uh, so that's a possibility. Others would date it a little bit later because of um, some of the word choices at other times in the book. But it, it seems, because of its Paleo-Hebrew script in Qumran, that it is uh, perhaps tied to the Pentateuch. Ezekiel quotes the book of Job. So that helps give us a point of reference for when it was complete. Uh, Ezekiel 14 uh, quotes the book of Job, so it was at least... Uh, complete before the time of the exile, even though, again, other people will argue that it was written during the um, exile or post-exile. The argument for a exile or post-exile um, writing is to say, well, this is a book about suffering and comfort that the Israelites needed at a time of suffering when, and they needed comfort. The problem is 
the Israelites knew very well they were in exile, not for their innocence, but specifically for their guilt and for breaking the covenant. Whereas Job receives the suffering, and it is not a covenant curse. It is not for breaking the covenant. He is innocent. So it's not as applicable as it may seem if people want to date it to the exile or post-exile. So it seems reasonable to say that it was written before the time of Ezekiel. It was uh, perhaps uh, perhaps gained prominence during the time of Solomon. Uh, maybe it was even written by Solomon, perhaps that late. Um, so there are just some thoughts on the, the book. Yeah. So you gave a couple of bookends uh, as early as Moses, as late as Ezekiel. And you also mentioned the uh, references to the Psalms and Isaiah. Mm-hmm. Does that mean there would have been some editorializing? Um, if it was earlier, perhaps, yeah. Uh, if it was later in the kingdom era, pre-exile, it, it doesn't have to necessarily have been editorial. It could have been intentionally included. Yeah. What is it about the book that indicates that Job is a Gentile? He's from the land of Uz, U-Z, um, which, uh, based on my little bit of reading on it, it seems it, it is not a... Um, it's not a Jewish place. It's not an Israelite place. It's it's nearby, um, out in and and there were. Oh man, everybody I read said that, and I never really picked up on their specific arguments beyond that. Let me see if I can find something really quickly. I don't have an answer for you right now. I apologize. I don't want to. I don't think Job, he, he mentions God over and over and over again, but I don't think he ever calls him the Lord. Doesn't, he doesn't use the name. I've not looked at that either. That would, that would help. It would know if he, that would help us to know whether he knows the covenant name of Yahweh. He at least is familiar with the covenant God. Um, and you would know by whether or not he uses the all caps, or whether your ESV uses all caps for the name of God. Um, brief glance, I don't, I don't see that. Sorry, I don't have a straightforward answer. Okay, let's look at some of those uh, key passages. We looked at some of the main points, and we're gonna re- we're gonna come back to the question of the re- retributive principle. That is, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. You know, if you do wrong, you get um, punishment. If you do right, you get good. That's the retributive principle, and uh, there are definitely elements of that that is, that are true. Uh, but it is they are that principle is of course entirely misapplied here, and by Job's friends. When God opens His mouth to speak, uh, He does not speak in terms of the retributive principle. It's a totally different level. And, and that's, that's what we're building to. But before we get to that, it's, it is helpful. You look at that uh, outline there. You see the friends' speeches, all those friends' speeches, Job's responses, uh, first cycle, second cycle, third cycle, and then Elihu comes and speaks, and then God himself speaks. And all of these speeches really are anticipating that God will speak uh, because they are all insufficient. Let's look. Um, we, we looked at Job... No, we didn't look at Job 1. Let's, let's flip open to Job chapter 1. We'll just look at some of these passages, these key passages that will lead us into these, um, some of these dialogues. 
Job 1, verses 20 through 22, it says, And Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Yes. There it is. Yep, all, all caps there. That was uh, Job 1, verses 20 through 22. First one under key passages. Uh, Job 2 gives us, uh, although Job's wife was telling him you should curse God and die, Job says in uh, chapter 2, verse 9, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. He says, you know, God gives us good, and we've received it. If God gives us disaster, we don't reject that. We take what God gives us. It's really a perspective of trusting the Lord. And that's something that uh, has is really uh, notable and remarkable, is that Job seems to not be holding on to, to the abundance that he had. He seems to be holding on to the Lord, and he doesn't do it perfectly, and he says some things that the Lord has to correct. But um, he, especially right off the bat, he, he's trusting the Lord that even he is behind this. And Job doesn't have that, that peak into heaven where Satan goes before the Lord. He doesn't have that. We have that, uh, that peak uh, from, from chapters 1 and 2. And still he continues to trust the Lord, which in the end will vindicate uh, the Lord and prove Satan to be wrong. Uh, flip over to Job 13. I know that's not on there, but I want us to look at Job 13. Yeah, that is it. Job 13, 15. Thank you. This one is, you, you've heard this. Um, I don't even know. Is it in a, a popular worship song these days? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. He's holding intention two things here. I hope in this God who even brings disaster, but I will not compromise on the truth that I did not sin to deserve this. Uh, and, and so he's holding those two things uh, at the same time. And he's gonna, he, he will take whatever the Lord um, gives him, and he will hope in God, yet he will also, he's looking for a way to present his case to God. And that, um, that is exactly... Uh, thank you, Mindy, for reminding me of that verse. That is exactly what I was trying to get to. Job, in his responses, he really wants to present his integrity before God. And he's trying to prove that he, he does not deserve this, um, this disaster. Job 19, let's flip over there. Verses 25 through 29 says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say, how will we pursue him? Or how we will pursue him? And the root of the matter is found in him. 
Be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. This passage anticipates the resurrection. It anticipates Jesus, and it anticipates the gospel uh, in a beautiful seed form here. Uh, and, and we will come back to that when we get to looking at Christ and Job. And then lastly, um, let's just flip over to Job 38. We're not going to read, of course, God's entire answer. It is lengthy. Uh, but just the first few verses here, this is where the Lord begins to speak uh, after, at the end of Elihu's monologue that seemed to maybe help a little bit, but actually in the end doesn't bring the conclusion. The Lord must speak. And the Lord does, and God answers Job. In, uh, starting in verse 1, it says, And the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. That's not the pastoring technique they taught us in seminary. <laughs> I'm also not God. <laughs> and it's... Uh, it's interesting, some people interpret verse 2 and say, God is specifically calling out Job for his wayward words. And you have darkened counsel with your words. And, and some people think that's not in reference to Job, that's in reference to Elihu. But God, he's calling Job to stand up, dress for action like a man. And I'm going to question you. Oftentimes when people are struggling, they're the ones who are asking questions, asking the why, oh Lord, why? Give me a reason, what's the purpose? And they cry out, but God shows up and he starts asking the question. And he does it graciously and lovingly. Um, and it, it may not sound gracious to you, but it is gracious. And it is out of his care for Job. And Job's, Job responds properly. Uh, Job seems to have a two-stage two response the first time. He backs off his questioning. Um, but then God goes further into the, to the point where Job repents uh, and trusts fully. So there's, there's that back and forth again um, between Job and God. Okay, I want us to talk a little bit more about what Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar said, uh, rather than moving right into the New Testament context here. So I want to give us a summary, and this comes from um, Richard Belcher Jr.'s chapter from Miles Van Pelt's book, um, about just a summary of what these, these friends are saying to Job. And uh, apparently they believe Job must be suffering because of something Job has done. They look at the disaster and say, well... I can tell you why. It's because you messed up somewhere. And they don't, they don't right, out the bat, right off the bat come and, and say that. In fact, they sit with him for a while, for seven days before they even speak. And then their first um, cycle of, of comments don't really start accusing him, but they kind of, it, it gets the ball rolling and then they do start calling him out in their later cycle. So uh, they seek to uphold the justice of God. So these, these are what we call orthodox friends. They seek to uphold the justice of God, which must mean that Job has sinned to bring on this suffering. And they cannot reconcile God's justice with Job's assertions of, of Job's own integrity. The friends make many true statements about God, but they stumble when they try to apply those statements to Job's situation. In other words, the main problem is the application of theology, which is a matter of wisdom. So that's the problem we're facing with these friends. So here's what Eliphaz says first. He's the first one to speak. And he speaks again in three, three uh, speeches. Uh, first, he tries to comfort Job by reminding him that he fears God 
and, and, and reminding him of the integrity of his ways. And he's telling him, you know, but if you did sow trouble, you'll reap it. That's what happens with, with people who sow trouble. Uh, and that's, that's his, his first, um, first speech. His second speech is a little bit more confrontational. It points out that Job's own mouth condemns him. This is uh, 15 verse 6. So if you want to kind of flip through and follow along, this is um, Eliphaz's second speech in 15 6. And he points out that Job has condemned himself with his words. And, and then he offers a poem <laughs> on the fate of the wicked. Oh, Job, let me just recite a, a poem for you. You know, don't take it personally. Um, but it implies that Job is suffering because of his sin. And, and so that's what goes on. Um, no, I'm sorry. That's, yes, it, it, it implies that, that, that um, the wicked are the ones who give birth to trouble. And then Eliphaz's third speech in chapter 22 tries to pinpoint Job's wickedness by listing examples of things that Job may need to confess as a way to get Job to acknowledge his sin. So he thinks he's dealing now with a stubborn friend who's claiming that he's righteous, but actually sinned, and he's just trying to help his friend confess his sin so that the Lord can fix things. That's kind of how it seems to be going. And so, uh, you know, if Job were, were sinful... Um, Eliphaz has done a good job pastoring his friend. Uh, and, and of course, this is not to say that Job was never sinful or that, you know, sin in general does not, uh, Job didn't deserve the consequences of sin in general. This is speaking specifically of this disaster related to something specific Job had done, and it was not tied to something specific Job had done. That is not why God brought this disaster. Bildad speaks. Bildad takes up the cause of God's justice in order to defend God's justice. We go back to chapter 8 here. He says, Job's children must have sinned, and that Job is suffering because of his sin, because Job's children died. And uh, Job cannot be blameless because God would not reject a blameless man. These are the principles that they're trying to apply at the wrong time. And then he gives a graphic description of the fate of the wicked. This is in chapter 18. Um, and then in his last speech, chapter 25, he straight up attacks Job's claims of innocence. So the friends are turning a little bit more bitter throughout the speeches. And then Zophar, some people say um, he didn't offer a third speech. Uh, but in the first two here, um, he's trying to help Job understand how God works in the world. And if Job would just repent, then he could enjoy the security of repentance that God gives to those who repent. And if Job would just confess his sins and repent of his sins, then, then God would um, give him peace. And then he also um, reminds him that the fate of the wicked awaits him. And he describes that in chapter 20. So those are, that's what the friends do. Helpful principles. Things that we would find ourselves very tempted to say to people who are struggling and who are suffering. Um, I know we have counselors in here, and I don't know if these are tools that would be recommended to use or not. Um, but I think uh, I think we have a lot to learn from this, uh, and it's specifically not um, perhaps we place ourselves in in Job's shoes. But the thing, the wisdom that we take away from this is that God does not always deal out life circumstances based on that retributive principle that we so naturally think of. And so when your life is going easy, don't think it's because you're doing great. And when your life is hard, don't think it's because you've been sinning. Trust that the Lord 
moves in these ways and, and gives trajectories and ups and downs in your life, not based on you, but based on his glory and his own will. And that's, um, in a lot of ways, the principle that, um, that we learn from reading these speeches from the friends. And Job responds after each speech, uh, and he, as, as we mentioned earlier, he wants to present his case before God, and he also uh, continues to assert that he is innocent. He does that at least three times. He also um, explores the complexity of God's ways in the world so that his view of God is not limited to the mechanical view of deed and consequence that the friends present, and that opens the door for him to hope in God's sovereignty in Job 24. Uh, and then uh, later... Uh, Job speaks some surprising statements of hope. Well, some of them are earlier. This is thirteen fifteen, which I was um, wanting us to read earlier. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Chapter 19, I know that my Redeemer lives, which we read. And then uh, chapter 23, he says, when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. So Job hangs on to some hope throughout his responses. And then... Job reminisces. He looks back on how good things were and contrasts it with how terrible things are now. And he starts to call down upon himself negative, horrible consequences if he has done any of these wicked deeds uh, that he brings up. And that's in chapters 30 and 31. And then Elihu starts to speak. Elihu is not one of the comforting friends. He's not one of the three as a part of the cycle. This is a a fourth friend who perhaps was there for the, the grief and only now speaks up. And uh, I listened to Derek Thomas do a quick summary of, of the book of Job. And he says, here's what you need to know about Elihu. He starts well and ends poorly. So he, he starts, it seems to be, um, he seems to be taking a different approach than the other friends. Um, and at a literary level, he, he's stepping in as the option that may perhaps find a solution with human wisdom. So if anybody out there is going to say, hey, we can, we can find a solution as people, Elihu's the one that they're going to trust in this moment because he's stepping in and he's offering stuff that the other friends don't offer. He's kind of that last hope for human wisdom. And it's not enough. Human earthly wisdom is not going to be enough as we face the difficulties of life. Um, the key question is whether he truly advances the argument or really operates with the same perspective. Some are negative. Some people who read it are more negative. Some are more positive and say he does give partial answers. Um, but in the end, we see from Elihu that uh, human wisdom falls short and we need God to answer. And Elihu doubts that God will answer. He says nah, the possibility is not really all that great. Uh, and he says, you know, God already has answered you. You just didn't hear it. Um, and then all of a sudden, God speaks out of the whirlwind in Job 38. And that's where I want us to spend a little bit of time right now looking at God's response. So uh, flip over, over to chapter 38. God is speaking uh, directly to Job. And he, as you see in verse 2, if this is directly uh, spoken to Job, he, he's accusing Job of having misspoken, and he begins questioning. And the first speech here that God speaks is a bunch of questions that remind Job of what? How would you articulate what these questions remind Job of in chapter 38? 
<laughs> God is God and I am man. Creator-creature distinction. The world's really, really complex. Mm-hmm. We do not have God as infinite. Mm-hmm. We have finite brains. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really well put. The, the incredible complexity of how the world works and how God works in the world. Who are we to think we understand that? And this is a reminder that you don't get it. As much as we think we do, we don't get it. They're humbling claims or questions. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? There is no answer to that. For someone who, you know, Job has been focusing at times on how hard his life is, and God's reminding him, this isn't about you. And Job admits. Uh, And when he responds in chapter 40, he admits his knowledge is limited and he has no answers. And he puts his hand over his mouth and he proves he doesn't have any more arguments to make. And he feels the impact, but he has not yet renounced anything. And so God has to speak again. So the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind in chapter 40, verse 6 again. He says again, dress for action like a man. I'll question you and you make it known to me. Will you put me in the wrong? Now he's accusing Job of of trying to vindicate himself even against God. And God is saying, have you even considered vindicating me in this situation? Um, And so God is raising the question, do you believe I am just? Or do you, Job, have the ability to power, or the ability and the power to govern the world? Are you running this show, Job? And then he gives two examples. Behemoth and Leviathan. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating that some of the most um, difficult texts are the answer to one of the most practical questions in life. Um, I'm going to try my best here to uh, summarize what Derek Thomas said about these. Uh, he, he was quoting... Uh, a leading Job scholar who said, you know, just for the sake of argument here, let's say behemoth is a hippopotamus and Leviathan is a crocodile. And that's what these texts are referring to, right? Um, And even if there is more to this, this point is still well made. Um, Derek Thomas goes on to say, you know, I, I understand why you would want to save the polar bears. He says, I do not understand why there are crocodiles. And if you were to ask God, why did you make a crocodile? He'd say, I don't know. Why would God have made a crocodile? He said, maybe for shoes and for belts. But the answer is, it's for his glory. Leviathan is for God's glory. Behemoth is for God's glory. These creatures... That is the question of the book of Job. Behemoth and Leviathan represent evil and suffering. Why did God create these? Not that he is the author of evil, but but why in this moment God was the author of this disaster in Job's life? 
Why? The answer is the same. I don't know, but it's for God's glory. And that forces you to repackage and to reframe your approach when life gets really hard. Why is it like this? I don't know, but we do know it's for God's glory. And we're always looking for answers, and we always think that if we get an answer to why things are so difficult, we think that will solve it. But if you get an answer to the deepest pain in your life, a rational explanation that makes sense, does it fix it? No. It's trusting the Lord when it doesn't make sense. And that's the lesson that Job learned. And that's the lesson that we are invited to learn with Job as the Lord calls him out and reminds him, I, I don't know why God does this, but we know it's for his glory and I trust him. Though he slay me, I trust him when he gives me good and I trust him when he gives me disaster. And that's the point of the book of Job. Um, we have a few follow-up points we can get into, but before we get into some of these um, more literary discussions, um, questions about that point, comments about that. Yeah, Amy. Job never really got an answer to his questions. God didn't answer the why question. He simply showed Job who he was. Yeah. And Job, that was enough. Yeah. That's right. And I, I will not be able to phrase this well, um, but I had an, a, kind of an epiphany moment in my faith when Pastor Josh Lyle explained what, what God's glory is. And for a long time, I was like, why does God need to glorify himself so much? I mean, it almost seems egotistical in a way, in my uneducated brain. But he was trying to explain to me God's glory and the reason it's important is that it's anything that reveals more of his character and more of who he is. And he's giving us these little glimpses of his hugeness that we just can't handle. And so he gives us these glimpses of his glory so we can understand him more. And so it is, it's a gift to us when he reveals his glory because then we understand him more. 
and we know his character more, and the result should be that we trust him more in the long run. The more mm -hmm. we know, mm -hmm. the more we trust. Mm -hmm. And that was, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. It's not an ego thing. It's not, I need more glory, the human thing. Mm -hmm. It's, let me show you my glory, mm -hmm. who I am. And that's an entirely different thing. Mm -hmm. That's right. And it shows you that our, our job of glorifying Him is a gracious call for us to get to do that. Because we, we see Him more and more. And we, um, that, that is how we were designed to flourish, was knowing Him and being with Him. And so then taking that concept and looking, applying it, as I'm summarizing Book of Job in my head here, uh, it's it's the question of are we when things are difficult are we content with God Himself or do we want something else? And so often we want the something else. We we'll say I'll take God as long as He gives me relatively easy life and as long as things turn out the way I think they ought to turn out and as long as all um, you know as long as everything goes the way I think it should go according to what I think the good life is uh, and when really it should just be am I content? trusting the Lord to make this happen the way that is best. And he does that in our lives, and he does that in the lives of those around us. And it requires letting go, and it goes back to those early um, verses that we read at the beginning of Job, where Job says, he gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, no matter what I am dealt. Okay, let's, uh, let's look at the... Uh, just one interesting comment here. You know, Job actually was restored. Uh, there was this lavish restoration, and some people don't like that because it proves to them, they say, oh, we'll see. Um, this is supposed to, you know, God is going to reward righteousness, and if you confess just the right way, and if you trust God just the right way, he's going to give you all your stuff back. That's not the point. Uh, the point of this restoration is that God has not forsaken his servant, it is also clear, it proves Satan wrong about Job because Job was not dependent on um, wealth to be dependent or to trust the Lord. Uh, and it, Job's honor and God's honor are vindicated by this uh, restoration that we read about in uh, chapter 42. Um, and even though the reason for the suffering is unknowable, there is hope for restoration even for you and for me, even when it doesn't look like it. Um, God is not obligated to give us the wise. Uh, as, as Kevin said, Job didn't leave with an answer. Uh, and, it's, and it's important that questions... This is... The world is, does not like what Richard Belcher Jr. writes right here. And it's this. It is important that questions come to an end as a person willingly submits to the sovereignty of God. At some point, you need to stop asking your, but why me questions and lean on to God and trust him and be grateful that he is there with you. Okay, let's look at um, approaching the New Testament on the handout here, and this will be our, our wrap up here. I'm sure we have already hit on a handful of these. Uh, be ready for sword drill as we go from different parts of uh, Job here and there. Especially be ready for Job 16. 
Um, the resurrection is present in the book of Job in a couple instances. The hope of the resurrection is expressed. Job's hopes were centered in resurrection. He trusted the Lord, not that the Lord would necessarily give him um, physical restoration this side of eternity, but he trust, trusted that he has uh, hope beyond the grave. He says, after my skin has been thus destroyed, in Job 19, yet in my flesh I shall see God. He trusts that he will die, but he will rise and he will see God. So he hoped in the resurrection. Uh, now, this one's really interesting. In his restoration, when he got everything back twofold, it's like a type of resurrection, but he didn't receive 20 kids. He had 10 originally. God gave back double of everything afterward, but he only gave him 10 kids. And some take this to say, Job still has 20 kids because of the resurrection from the dead. Um, so he, he had the 10. He never lost those first 10. They were, in a sense, given to the Lord um, so, so that would be an implicit indication that the children will be raised and that the resurrection is real even for them and for Job. Everything else that, that Job received back, he got double. So if he, I don't remember the exact numbers, but if he had a hundred donkeys, he got 200 donkeys back afterward. Um, now Christ and Job, in Job two, uh, he asks, but how can a man be in the right before God? And the answer is in Christ. For our sake, he made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. These, these questions in wisdom literature, you may remember this from the handout from last week. There are a lot of questions that are raised in wisdom literature that you and I get to read in the full light of Revelation, and so we take the person of Christ and we answer that question. How can we be right before God? Only in Jesus. He made him to be sin, who knew no sin. Uh, point two under Christ and Job. Job longed for a mediator between himself and God in Job 9. And he acknowledges that even now, behold, my witness is in heaven and he who testifies for me is on high. That's Job 16, 19. Uh, let's, let's open to, the, to Job 16 if you're not already there. I'm going to start a little bit earlier. This exercise I heard um, Matt Bradley do. <clears throat> he said, imagine Christ reading, or as we read this, imagine Christ saying it. And you begin to see a type of Christ, the righteous one who suffers. As Job was not to blame for the disaster that came upon him, so Christ was not to blame for our sin and the death that came upon him. So, so listen to these words, starting in Job 16, verse 6. If I speak... My pain is not assuaged. And if I forbear, how much of it leaves me? Surely now God has worn me out. He has made desolate all my company and he has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me. And my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Verse 10, men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They mass themselves together against me. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin and have laid my strength in the dust. My face is red with weeping and on my eyelids is deep darkness. Although there is no violence in my hands, my prayer is pure. 
And of course, word for word, that cannot be spoken by Christ for various um, tensions, but the, the gist is there. The righteous sufferer who was given over, who was slain, even though there's no violence in his hands and his prayer is pure. Um, we'll keep going. Christ and Job here. We already looked at Job 19, 25, and 26. Um, and then lastly, Job 28, 12 really is a question that is applicable to all the wisdom literature. Uh, Job 28, 12 awaits all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden in Christ. And when it asks, but where shall wisdom be found and where is the place of understanding? And it is in Christ. As Colossians 2 tells us. All right, I have no more information for you here on the book of Job. Thoughts, wrap up questions. All right, let's pray. Gracious Lord, would we take our place? Would we take our place humbly in relationship to you, the Creator, realizing we are the creation? designed to give you glory. And we pray that we would, with Job, learn that it is more important to latch on to you, our God, than for you to give us what we think we need. Would we be content knowing that even, even if we don't have an answer to the wise in life, we, we have the author of life. And we trust him and trust that he will bring us to completion on that last day. And we await that resurrection. And we trust that the life that you will restore to us will not be twofold. It will be infinitely more than the life that we have died to as we die with Christ and rise a new life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.